0: Welcome to Two Guys, One Book, where two friends tackle their reading list one book at a time. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Two Guys, One Book. I am Brian. I'm joined by my co-host, Tim. Tim. And today we are discussing the book The Postman by David Brin. I, Brian, picked this book. It is a sci-fi book. And um, why did I pick this book? is the ultimate first question out of our co-host's mouth. so I You will, saw it coming. <laughs> I saw it coming. So I'll explain <laughs> it right away. The Postman is a dystopian novel, which is right up my alley. I love dystopian stories. And I've heard about this book because it was infamously made into a movie by Kevin Costner from, in 1997. Um, but the movie got terrible reviews. And, you know, i never seen the movie, but I looked into the book, like the source material, like for a movie to be made of a book, the book itself has to be pretty good, one would assume. Uh, so I looked in the book and it was right in my alley. I got it a while ago. So it was on my bookshelf already. And that's why I picked it. You know, you don't need much of a rhyme or reason nowadays to read a book. And I made Tim read it as well. So. Tim, did you know anything about this book going into it?
1: Uh, honestly, nothing. But I did find that it was a movie as well, and I was surprised it came right after uh, Waterworld, which was also uh, both were big budgets. But Waterworld was more successful. This one did not do well at the box office. It didn't get very good like reviews. I don't think it like the story adapted super well to the to the screen. Um, but I guess the kind of success of Waterworld. Um, I don't know. I think it was successful. Like it made a lot of money, even though they spent a lot of money. I don't know what the ultimate economics of it ended up being. But uh I guess yeah, in I the wake of that they made this one.
0: Yeah. I couldn't tell you about Waterworld either. I remember I mean I've seen that one and, and after I will admit, after I finished the book, I did see the movie then. Mm-hmm. Did you watch the movie at all? I've seen bits and
1: pieces of it. I don't know. Oh, Have you really? seen it?
0: Wait, Waterworld or Postman? No, we're talking about Postman now. Oh, okay. I, okay. Okay. So back up. i seen Waterworld on like TNT back in the day, right? Yeah, little bits here or there where I can pretty much glean together the whole story. Don, Dennis Hopper has only one eye, you know. I, you know, there's big explosions and whatnot. Okay, I get it. We're not talking about Waterworld anymore. Waterworld was fine, but the Postman. Yeah. I went and got the Postman DVD from the library after i finished the book did you did you see did you do
1: that no. at all uh, no i did not
0: uh, what did you think of the movie the movie is terrible <laughs> oh my god why is it so and bad it, it's th- first of all it's 3 hours long and they very much divert from the source material like we can get into the minutia of it but the movie is so different from the book in a lot of ways and it's just basically like They focus more on the actual postman himself, and in the movie, he comes across as like almost like a whiny guy that doesn't really want all this attention. I mean, like I guess in the book, well, first let's should we take a step back and explain everything that happens, huh?
1: Yeah. What do you want to do? Like a quick kind of plot summary overview. Quick quick synopsis
0: of the book, The Postman. Um, A gentleman named Gordon is traveling across Idaho in a post apocalyptic world, um, where there isn't much, there's no more US government. People are just kind of on their own. They form these little uh, villages throughout, dotted throughout America. He's traveling across Idaho. He gets robbed, so he doesn't have any supplies. And so he's trying to chase the guys that robbed him to get his supplies back. And he comes across this mail truck in the woods. He hides out in the mail truck overnight. He takes the uniform. And then he goes on his merry little way. The uniform then signals to people about a bygone era, and because the, the this post-apocalyptic world takes place like eighteen years after civilization fell apart, so there's still people alive that remember the old days. Not very many because they're getting older, and people aren't old people aren't living as long. But there's still people that remember the old days, and the po, the po, postal uniform gives them status. It lets them stay places, and then. People start giving him letters and then he starts traveling from town to town, establishing postal routes wherever he stops because people are people are excited to get in communication with other villages that might be in the area. So he travels through Oregon. Oregon is the main state and that he travels through. But there's still an army of like survivalists down in southern Oregon that um, are up to no good, more like. You know, the gun toting, you know, doomsday preppers that we think of today, but on steroids almost Um, so that there, so southern Oregon is an area that he tries to avoid. But eventually he comes across this group of scientists who are um, operating a one of like the only remaining computer uh, called Cyclops and Cyclops helps people in that area of Oregon, uh, the Willamette Valley are part of oregon they cyclops helps you know kind of restore order and and peace in that valley and they have electricity there too which most places don't have electricity but gordon all the time feels like a kind of a fraud because he just kind of stumbled along this uniform he's just kind of using this as a way to travel and get food and shelter uh but in the meantime he's actually seeing good people step up and do good things. So he said he's he's a kind of a reluctant hero, but he still sees the good it can do for society, where at the same time he does feel like a fraud. Um and then he ultimately figures out that Cyclops, the computer, is a as a as a front uh put on by these scientists, that this computer has broken years ago, but the scientists still act like it's working to help keep maintain the order in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. But Unfortunately, the survivalists from the south are working toward their way north. So Gordon has to get them together um, and try to unify people to fight. But the, the Willamette Valley has kind of gotten soft. So Gordon goes to this other tribe to try to convince them to help. But George Pohonten who is the leader of that tribe. And he kind of says, no, we don't want to get into your business, each village kind of for themselves. But then eventually, when Gordon does come face to face with the survivalists from the south, George Poe Houghton does come in and help, and there's like this big battle between Poe Houghton and the main survivalist guy, which I didn't quite follow all that. That's kind of when it fell apart a little bit for me. But eventually, George Powhatan wins. Gordon uh, goes off his merry little way to establish postal routes, maybe to the south because he heard about California having uh, some form of government. So that's kind of, and then that's kind of how the book ends, right?
1: Yeah, that's a good overview. I would say you can kind of think of it in terms of like three sections. So you have him slowly becoming this postal service person, giving people hope of a restored United States. And then you have the second part with Cyclops. And then, you know, this AI that's sort of, you know, giving orders and helping keep the faith alive, even though it's not actually working, it's not functioning, but they people will think it is. And then, um, and then the last part, which is, yeah, you mentioned kind of more fighting, and then it takes a weird turn with, like, the superhuman uh, people who are, like, super combat machines, which is kind of, like, a uh, cliche, I think, in some, like, sci-fi type right. work, and it just seemed like an unnecessary diversion from the main story, so. Yeah.
0: Completely agree. I felt like, I think they were called augments, right? Because they were augmented humans. Mm-hmm. Like, they took... So the, some of the survivalists and George Pohatten, well, first of all, just we're we're seeing the whole story through Gordon's eyes, only through Gordon's eyes. So Gordon sees some of these survivalists that are super jacked, maybe even abnormally so. And then he realizes that they are what these called augments, which were some sort of sci- t- science experiment going on around the time that society fell apart. And yeah. It kind of made me think of like Universal Soldier with Jean Claude Van Damme. Uh,
1: I'm I think I've heard of it. I'm not that familiar with it, but yeah, yeah.
0: I, it's it's kind of a obscure reference. Um, but like the, the that movie was kind of meant that like they make they they take humans like but like jack them up and insert technology into them so that they become these like super soldiers. And that's kind of what um, the, these survivalists, some of the survivalists were like in the in the Postman, but yeah. then when Gordon goes to get help from George Pohantin, George Pohantin turns him down, but then later he, George Pohantin comes to the rescue because he's also an augment, and Gordon had no idea. And so then these two augments battle out, and, and that's where it really lost me because like, I felt like the, the whole two, first two-thirds of the book were really relatable because they were, I felt like, a somewhat realistic uh, portrayal of a potential dystopian America. Do you, do you do you agree with that?
1: I 100% agree. I would say like, yeah, the first like maybe half of the book, I really, really enjoyed because as far as like dystopian books, it seemed the most believable, I think, in a sense that it wasn't like there is one thing that caused the collapse of society. It was sort of a combination of like um, wars and then bioweapons and, uh, you know, just various factors and then you sort of have these villages it's not like a complete wipeout and then you have the survivalists kind of doing their own thing and then that ends up being a major conflict holding society back and preventing things from getting back on track so i i love the general message of at least you know the first half and what it was going for
0: oh absolutely i completely agree and i like the fact that they like he 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 didn't like explicitly lay out a happened then b happened then c happened and that's where we are in the postman no it was very much through gordon's perspective so gordon you know talked about you know very various different things that led up to this uh, the to the scenario that we find ourselves in in the story and he talked about the three-year winter how so so some sort of atomic event or something create altered the climate and there was a three-year winter and he didn't know if he would make it out of that and he was in he was like in the in the army or something in Minnesota, and then he was working his way west after the three year when winter ended. So I just found that that whole, yes, first half to two thirds really compelling because I felt like he did a good job of world building without getting down in the minutia of all everything that happened and establishing like how. Gordon used the postal service, um, the postal uniform to survive. But then he also was was spreading rumors about a restored United States, which he didn't know were, which were not true, but he used to give people hope because he found hopeful people were more likely to give him food and shelter.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And he talks about, like, he has a conscience. Like, he, he talks about feeling guilty that he's not being truthful with people. But then it's almost like everyone wanted so bad to believe in the restored United States that it became this self-fulfilling thing where he just slowly started to embody this post worker thing. And then it became, yeah, like a real thing where different people got involved and we're trying to make the postal service real. So I thought that was cool. Yeah,
0: Which I thought was a really cool, uh, aspect of it that by him just trying to survive and and spread the story, like other people got involved too. and, And we're establishing these routes. So it grew beyond him. So even, even if like he still was dealing with, um, you know, feelings of guilt about being a a fraud and misleading people, he was ultimately doing good. Yeah. And then there was those other people that joined the postal service, like Johnny Stevens, I felt like was a good character who, I mean, he was a little one dimensional in his love of Gordon and his willingness to follow him anywhere. And he eventually dies trying to chase down a package in the river or something. (laughs) So that's a little unfortunate, but I felt like he was a good character to show how much people were Willing to believe in his story,
1: yeah. It it was really like a fake it till you make it thing with the postal service. Uh, I will say, yeah, what you said about him being a one-dimensional character, like it seemed like almost everyone outside of Gordon was not very fleshed out, super well. And I think, especially like the female like characters in the book, I think the authors even owned up to it that they were not very like multi-faceted or like given a good uh, good roles and that kind of thing. So right,
0: but at the same time, like there's that big like all the women of the of the Willamette Valley then just or not all the women but like there's a large group of women in the Willamette Valley where Cyclops is Gordon stays there for a while to help them try to prepare to fight those survivalists from the south but the women then take it upon themselves to kind of try to to lead some sort of rebellion and it's not and it's, it's and it's kind of said that like Maybe they went out and tried to seduce some of the survivalists and then lure them, you know, like be their mates. And then one night they maybe tried to kill them or try to kill as many of them as they could when they're least expecting it.
1: Yeah, it just That last that was another element towards the end of the book that I just felt was a little like not super well uh, fleshed out. It felt like a draft piece and didn't conceptually fit as well with like the first, you know, ideas of the book that were presented.
0: Right, and then yeah the 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 end was definitely like kind of a letdown, but i I mean, I do feel like he kind of painted himself into a corner and this whole augmented uh so- sold, augmented soldiers or augmented humans thing, I don't know, I kind of liked where he was going this whole time, and I kind of felt like it was kind of a realistic thread, but yeah. then he kind of went off the rails to this more sci-fi-ish type
1: of ending, you know what I mean yeah. So speaking of the other parts of the book, though, like have you seen uh, Twenty Eight Days Later, the movie? I have not. I think that's a great movie.
0: Yeah, I've heard good things about it. I'm just not very much in into scary movies, but it's more of a zombie movie than a scary movie, right?
1: You know, I feel like it's sort of a blend of genres. It's like thriller, zombie, and little action, but the story is good. Uh, I won't like, spoil anything, but I'll just say like there's the conflict between zombies, but ego and thinking it's going to be that kind of cliche formula but then it sort of uh, turns out that it's really like the man versus man dynamic and like these human things that becomes the big uh, focus and I feel like that's similar in this sense too where it's like you know it's a dystopian post-apocalyptic book but it's not so much about that it's about these survivalists who are kind of like screwing up societies trying to get back on track by like thwarting uh, people sort of banding together like it was so interesting they had this person Holm. Like H O L N, I think, right? That was like, it was like a conspiracy theorist person, basically, that they had like his books and like believed all his things. And it's like, it almost seems like history repeats itself, where you have these like figures that are held up it, by like certain, you know, people who maybe aren't thinking clearly. And then it becomes this like uh, hero to them and they sort of, yeah, live and die by their like, words. So yeah. it's, it's just, like, yeah. it's found again and again in history. <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah. And I think that's one thing that like at first when he talks about the survivalists in the s- south southern part of Oregon, it felt like perfectly natural. Like I feel I feel like, you know, it felt like that would be a, a, a realistic part of the dystopian America is that they were, were would be these bands of survivalists across the country.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Like, and this was written in like 1985 or something, right? Like the 80s. So, but it's a lot of it still feels relevant today, um, just yeah. with the you know societal tone going on. And people have said too, or I heard online, like you know, the, a lot of dystopian things were written in the 80s and in fiction because like Cold War era sort of, uh, you know, or post Cold War type um, vibe. But it still seems today like there's a whole new breed of dystopian fiction that's been popular. Yeah, yeah. Hunger games of, and everything. well, yeah,
0: yeah, a lot of hunger games, other stuff like that. But I think another thing that's really popped up lately is what I—I I think somebody said the other—I don't know where I heard this, maybe a podcast or something—where there's been a lot of books about like human consciousness being uploaded to AI or something, and then that going haywire. Like, I feel like yeah. that's kind of where we are now, where we know. AI is powerful. We know AI is going to be more powerful in the future. And I think writers are really take, using that as a launching point to create stories, which I think are interesting. I haven't read many of the current dystopian books, but I think that'd be cool if there's any good ones out there.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, similarly to like how all these movies kind of ended up being pretty big exaggerations to the realities that happened. I mean, like, obviously, like nuclear fallout is still a possibility. So we can't say it's too soon to rule that out. But like, I don't know, probably from how some people thought things were going to be in like 70s, 80s. I don't know. Every generation think, might think it's the end of the world at some point based yeah. on what's going on in the news,
0: right? Yeah, I, I think that's a very real human thing to 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 do. I think that's a natural inclination of human behaviors to always think we're kind of close to our end. Like, I think I think they've done kind of, I think if you look back throughout history, people always think that, like, oh, human beings will be around for a couple hundred more years. Like, they always thought that. Like, even back in, like, the 1600s, like, they were talking about the end of the world or, or, you know, human beings coming to an end or something like that. Because I feel like it's just so hard for us to think 200 or 300, 400, 1,000 years in the future. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. unfathomable because, like, our evolution is that we're just – thinking about our own survival and maybe our kids' survival, maybe their kids' survival. But, like, now that we're more civilized and, ha- and have better, um, you know, longer life expectancies. but, like, to think 500 years in the future, like, we can't do that. It's not even, you know, like, what what's the world going to be like 500 years now? from now? No one will have the right answer.
1: Right. But that is interesting that every generation has their own, like, thing they think is going to be the end of humanity and then, it just like evolves but there's must be something to our psychology as a species that a reason why we do that maybe i don't know
0: yeah but i feel like that's what made this book good was that i felt like it wasn't in the too far distant future and it still felt like something that could really happen
1: up until the very end and and like hope was a big element to it too which is like people's hope and civilization coming back and I think the author intentionally did that because he didn't want to like a Bad Max type thing where it's just like everything is just chaos, like, you know, for the sake of it and just like desolate. Yeah. Right.
0: I think I think that was something I read on the Wikipedia page for this book is that like the author did want to have some sort of hopeful end to his dystopian novel because that's what he wanted. That was his message that he wanted was that in spite of these survivalists and these other people that are out for themselves. When things, when the shit does hit the fan, so to speak, that humans will want to band together, maybe form little tribes to look out for each other and hopefully widen that circle of trust to include more and more people. And I think that's what the postman does by setting up the postal routes is that it does help small villages reach out to other small villages to help widen that circle of trust and and form community.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like the core of the message is that cooperation is like in our DNA on some level, right. I feel like. Yeah, right.
0: Just could have done without the augmented humans. Yeah. It. Well,
1: well, right. this. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, this reminded me and I think you two of Station Eleven, which we read because uh, uh, like he started out as like a Shakespearean actor going around. Yeah. And so and they do like they did plays and like music and stuff. So that seems like heavily influenced by this potentially.
0: Yeah, I wonder if Emily St. John Mandel had read The Postman ever before writing Station Eleven. But, um, yeah. but yeah, and so I didn't intentionally pick you know books that were so similar. Um, I just have, a, a, I mean, we have read Station Eleven. That's been a while though. It hasn't. Okay, while.
1: and and then American War as well is also dystopian. <laughs> <laughs> So what's behind the psychology of you that you're picking all these books?
0: (laughs) Well, it's because I think we're all doomed, Tim. (laughs) I
1: think
0: it. I I just find, you know, I am very much, just me personally, I am very much a a future-oriented person. I am very much also, I'm in the present a lot. Like in my day-to-day when I'm doing something, I am, you know, very much in the moment. But when I'm not in the moment, I don't really dwell on things in the past. I always kind of think about in the future, like what's going to happen. Like, cause to me, to me that's kind of been always been more interesting for me on a personal level. Like the past is something that's happened. You can't change it. Sure. You, 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 you dwell on it for a little bit to learn your lessons that you need to learn and you move on. But for me, it's always been about the future. Like what will happen? Because that is like open so many possibilities. That's why I kind of like, parallel universe theory you know like where mm-hmm. anytime there's you have a decision to make uh, or choosing two different things you know, there's another parallel universe where you chose the opposite of what you really choose in this universe so um that's why I like that and and it's just like i don't know like if the future is a utopia which it's not going to be spoiler <laughs> alert the future will not be a utopia but if it was a utopia it wouldn't make for a good book would it now
1: yeah conflict is the core of any book but Also, in Utopia, there could still be conflict. Well, even if people... Okay, okay. What comes to mind when you bring that up is, like, I remember seeing or listening to an interview with, like, I think it was Spike Jones, uh, who directed Her. you remember with... um, Which is a good good movie with Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson as the voice. And and I remember uh, the director and writer, Spike Jones, saying, like, even in this, like, World that's futuristic and advanced, like there's still like drama and like this like personal struggle, and like you know, everyone's basic needs are taken care of. There's not like war or disease in that book, but it's like he's still having sort of existential crisis, like relationship issues. So, my point is, like, obviously, the definition of utopia is like paradise, everything's perfect, but I'm just saying, like, even if you solve so many of humanity's problems, there's still. It's also, I feel like, in our nature to seek out, have some conflict in some form that we have to, like, struggle with. Yeah, completely
0: agree. I don't, that's why I don't think utopias are possible is because, well, I think the the, the context or not context, the connotation of a utopia is such that um, I think is a little too idealistic if that's even possible. (laughs) But like, so it's never going to happen because I think you're right. Part of human nature is is always having conflict or always being stressed about something. Like we have to be on guard about something, no matter what it is. Like there's always something to watch out for. I think that's part of our, in our evolutionary DNA, because like if we can't be complacent, we're too complacent all the time that animal might pop out of the bushes and eat us or something like that
1: yeah that's a good point it's very deeply rooted probably and it would just be boring if we're too complacent i think and (laughs) you know but this is why maybe you seek out uh this dystopian fiction because you don't have too much like drama in in your life which is a good thing like i don't have too much drama so you know
0: one thing that does interest me is how are human beings going to become extinct because it's going to happen i mean like if it doesn't happen the only way it won't happen is if we eventually leave earth but that's not going to happen for many 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 years so if we stay on earth and don't leave earth the earth will eventually cease to exist
1: do do you consider yourself like an optimistic person in general
0: i am that's the thing i am optimistic (laughs) because i'm optimistic in the short term like the next 50 years or whatever in my lifetime, I'm optimistic. Mm-hmm. I'm optimistic about what I can control. And that's the thing. i I can kind of detach myself from the future hate of the future fate of humanity, because that's completely out of my control. There's nothing mm-hmm. I can do about it because it's going to be so far in the future. Like it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. I hope not. Fingers crossed. But, um, sometime in the future, human beings will no longer exist.
1: And so how much, How much time do you spend thinking about the end of humanity, Brian?
0: I mean, I don't like, it doesn't keep me up at night. I just, you know, like how much I think about, um, I don't know, any other random topic. Really, it's not like I dwell on it or anything. I think it's just because it is so consequential, the fact that there could be no more human beings on Earth.
1: I guess I think of it as like someone like Bill Gates, who's got all this money and he's set for life. He's someone who's so high up on the Maslow hierarchy of needs that he can think of like humanity as a whole and that kind of thing. Whereas like most typical people are just trying to go like day by day and get, get through life, right? Right.
0: right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying I'm a better person for thinking this. No, I think I maybe have some sort of derangement.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. And And I'm not saying you are one way or the other. I'm just saying – I don't know. Like for me, I guess I don't, I try not to get too caught up in any hypothetical scenarios, even if they're good, like brain exercises. I just like, I don't know. I get frustrated because I'm like, what's the point of thinking about this thing that may or may not happen? I'm just trying to focus on, yeah, the present and that kind of thing.
0: Right. A hundred percent. I completely agree. And I think there's, that. that's perfectly fine. There's, you know, like I said, it's completely out of our control. So some people might think about it and then get overwhelmed and not, and you know, get anxious about it or something. Whereas I can think about it, it purely from a hypothetical sense and not really worry about it a whole lot, I guess.
1: Yeah, or, or like thinking about like aliens or something. it's like, yeah, yeah they're there probably aliens out there, but I'm not gonna like spend too much time stressing about if, when, will people meet alien type thing, you know, like that's, exactly. that's, that's not on my mind at all. <laughs> It's it's good to ha- like think about things hypothetically, and that's the benefit of reading fiction, I guess, is seeing through someone's lens. Like, here's how society could, uh, you know, collapse gradually mm-hmm. and suddenly, and um, here's how things might unfold. And and it's probably good to like, yeah, it gives you a sense of like what could be, what what you want to guard against as people. And um, and yeah, I think fiction can influence reality. Like I've heard multiple times that the movie War Games with Ferris Bueller. Oh, sorry, Matthew Broderick. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I heard it influenced Ronald Reagan to start like the cyber defense or like space uh, initiative in government. So it's sort of wild to think that some movie that someone just wrote, directed, produced ended up actually influencing like you know <laughs> national agendas and that kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's powerful to to imagine scenarios in in that sense.
0: Oh, yeah. I think I think that's the,
1: the beauty of fiction.
0: Um, and I think lately, the last couple of years, I have been more focused on nonfiction because I feel like nonfiction does – like especially the nonfiction I read, it, it addresses kind of like the world that we're living through now, how it operates, kind of more explaining – I feel like nonfiction can do a good job of explaining how the world is right now, whereas I think fiction – does a good way uh is it does a good job of exploring how the the world could be either in a good way or a bad way or you know somewhere in between um
1: yeah the the counterpoint to that though would be that it can show you in a bad way inaccurately like how i feel like with the terminator where it's like i don't know like obviously like skynet could be a thing and like take over humanity but like the odds of that are very low and i feel like the amount it's kind of like jaws scare people out of swimming in the ocean whereas like you know like the odds of you getting attacked by a shark are super low and the odds of a robot takeover are super low and like that shouldn't scare people out of like you know using technology to like better humanity just because this robot movie uh was so popular right Uh
0: uh-huh spoken from a
1: software engineer Uh (laughs) okay obviously i'm biased but (laughs) that doesn't mean i'm wrong
0: That's just what you want everyone to think. yeah, <laughs> think you don't know, don't mind these AI robots over here in the corner. They're just harmless little things until we flip a switch.
1: Okay. Obviously, there's all the huge drawbacks, to like technological things that can cause harm to humanity. but like I don't know, like there's scenarios involving like AI and social media that are more realistic than like a robot terminator thing, like shooting people. and like that shouldn't prevent init- like investments in robots that can automate like work and labor that can help move humanity forward in different ways so that's how i feel. I, about. I, yeah. yeah well said tim well said that's my yeah. soapbox moment yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. so yeah o- i like like overall impressions like did you like it you did not like it you felt
1: like yeah overall impressions the first half Uh, First third, first half were excellent, very creative. I think original kind of take on this genre. Um, It just sort of diverged at the end, Um, but you know, I'd recommend it. Uh, Yeah, what what were your overall impressions? Yeah, I liked, I liked it a lot.
0: I mean, yeah, the ending was a little little let let down, but I still think it's, still think it's a good read. I, it's like one of the, like I enjoyed read, like very much enjoyed reading it. Like, um, I think it has been because I've been reading a lot of nonfiction lately, that it, nonfiction can be kind of feel like homework sometimes. You know, I know it's important that uh, that I learn about certain things, but it can still feel like homework. This one just definitely felt like just good old fashioned, just kick back, relax and read. Well, I felt like what you said before, like it was written in 85. One thing I like is viewing how authors before like the 90s and the boom of the internet, how the authors pre-90s viewed the future from their perspective, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. this person, this author had that computer cyclops in the future, and it was like in this ultra-cold room, like vacuum-sealed or something, with this little display that created a squiggle, like a some sort of pattern that was always evolving and always changing or something. Like, you know, I just found that so interesting how – Authors would try to predict what computers will be like in the future.
1: Yeah, I, when I thought of that Cyclops AI thing, it reminded me of like how in the Space Odyssey, <laughs> just like this faceless, I can't do that, Dave. And like you know, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I I honestly didn't make that connection. I wonder if the author thought of that or used that as inspiration. But
1: yeah, yeah, yeah it's hard because like '80s, like. That was pre AOL and like dial up, right? I mean, like those things were just starting to happen. So, compared to what actually turned out, like people were still kind of imagining that future.
0: I just want to read one thing from the book as well, because I feel like the book did a good job of explaining something else. When uh, Gordon was talking to Johnny, one of his disciples, basically, about Nathan Hone and what happened with why did so many people believe in this? Guy with this that wrote this manifesto. And here's a little bar, part that I thought was pretty uh, prescient. Gordon shrugged. It was called the big lie technique. Johnny, just sound like you know what you're talking about. As if you're citing real facts. Talk very fast. Weave your lies into the shape of a conspiracy theory and repeat your assertion assertions over and over again. Those those who want an excuse to hate or blame those with big butt big, but weak egos will leap at a simple, neat explanation for the way the world is. Those types will never call you on the facts.
1: You want to know something funny? What? I have one quote in my notes, and it's that exact quote. From start to really? Yeah, yeah, that exact one. <laughs>
0: that's so cool. That's what's going on today.
1: Yeah. The fact that he says, yeah, the big lie and just how accurate. That's the thing like these kind of demagogue figures repeat over the years and um, they follow the same pattern of just, yeah, talk very fast, act as if you know what you're talking about, repeat the same thing over and over again. And those with an excuse to hate or blame, those with big but weak egos will leap at a simple, neat explanation for the way the world is and they won't call you on the facts. So it's just... I mean, it's just so well articulated, that whole phenomenon of, like, conspiracy, demagogues, and all these
0: things. Yeah. 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 So, I felt like that was worth sharing, and I'm glad we were on the same page, literally.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. quite literally.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's great. So, yeah. So, do you want to do rating time? Yeah, let's do it. All right. I'll go first, so that I'm not copying you. I'm giving it a four yeah. out of five.
1: Yeah, yeah. Do you want to elaborate or just? Stick oh, that?
0: well, because like I really liked it. I liked the 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 world building he did, the lead up to it, the first two thirds. Uh, I thought Gordon was an interesting character, you know, complex but not like completely transparent, you know, like and you know, so everyone else was kind of one dimensional. Yes, characters were a little one dimensional. The ending was a little bit of a letdown with the augmented humans finding each other, but. um everything else I think was so well done that it's a very solid four. fun read too.
1: Yeah. You know, I almost wish I just disagree with you a bit more in this podcast just because it would make for more interesting uh, debate. But I feel like I agree with everything you just said. It's like, I also give it a four and just say, yeah, first, third and half, very interesting, original and captivating. Uh, not as great on the character development or ending. And right. um, yeah, same, same feelings on that. So. Yeah. And so I, I,
0: I can see how this would be a difficult book to make into a movie because there's just so much that happens while him traveling through town and meeting the computer and then battling the survivalists that the movie itself, the Kevin Costner movie, just went on its own trajectory. And it was a completely different story. I mean, like, it's similar where he builds this postal service network, but like he gets captured by the whole wholeness first. The first part of the movie, he gets captured by the wholeness and they keep a prisoner, but he escapes. And the thing is, like, what's funny is the funny, uh, funniest part of the movie and then we can move on. The movie is not like the book. It's terrible. It's kind of entertaining to read the book and then watch the movie because it makes you appreciate the book and realize how bad the movie is. It's kind of one of those movies where it's so bad. You just kind of watch it and laugh at how bad it is because the actors are so bad. But yeah. um. Gordon Gordon Kevin Costner's Kevin Costner plays Gordon at the start of the movie he gets captured by the wholeness and he's prisoner for him a little bit but he has a beard and but he so he escapes and then when he be, then he finds the postal truck he doesn't find the postal truck until 45 minutes into the movie which hmm. is nuts but yeah. but then when he becomes the postman he's clean shaven and he he meets the same wholeness that held him prisoner but he's clean shaven instead of having a beard, and the wholeness is like doesn't even recognize him. It. It's so stupid. Like of <laughs> them, he should recognize this man.
1: But <laughs> that's your biggest gripe is the shaved yes. unshaved. <laughs> yes.
0: It's like Kevin Costner
1: shaves and becomes a completely different person. Yeah. It's I think I agree that it's probably a hard movie to adapt. I will say, like, it seemed like the action scenes that were in the book, aside from the modded humans, like were kind of cool where it's just like him versus some survivalists, and he's got to kind of come up with a way to, to take them down um like those were pretty suspenseful um so i think that would translate well to action scenes but the overall plot is uh sort of tricky i think to to pull off on a movie
0: yeah i think it could be yeah. done but with the but it's not going to be done anymore because kevin costner ruined it but that's okay kevin costner is yeah. Plenty of other great stuff? I like, love Field of Dreams, love Boulderm. I love his baseball stuff. So I always loved Kevin Costner. Just nobody bats a thousand. So
1: yeah, I think that one was a big budget and not great at the box office too. So it's yeah. you know it's one of those things where it's like other people probably don't want to risk trying it again because it's you know hard to pull off. But oh yeah, uh, worth a read for sure. Yeah, definitely. So moving on, what do we read next, Tim? The Great Mental Models, Volume One. By someone whose name I'm not sure how to pronounce, and Shane Parrish, two authors. <laughs> I'll look up the pronunciation prior. Okay. To the Recording. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes, I think this will be actually an interesting book. I got it from the library, so I'm I'm looking forward to reading it. So we'll see if if I uh, change <laughs> change my tune after finishing the book.
1: Yeah, I got to get to the like nonfiction again. Yeah, oh, I always like nonfiction. I, I, I'm coming around to your
0: side of nonfiction. Don't worry. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Are you yeah. gonna pick any more dystopian books anytime soon, or? Uh, hold probably, probably in the future. I mean, like dystopian books are almost a near certainty for me, so I'll give it maybe a year and pick another. <laughs> All right, that's fair. That's enough gap. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you can. So if you want to know what name Tim cannot pronounce. You can go to our website, twoguysonebook.com, where you can see the book and the author's whole names. And then you can make comments and other, other things. You can comment about what we've read in the past and what we will be reading in the future. So twoguysonebook.com. Check it out. So until you next time. Keep reading.